Hi, this is your host Sumaya Osmani. On this podcast, we explore how cooking with your senses and memory creates food that is much more than just a meal. It's a transportive experience. Every episode, we have a wonderful guest with us, and today we have the wonderful Gilly Bashan. She's a writer, a broadcaster, and a food anthropologist. Gilly is really a food expert from around the world, and she's written more than 40 cookbooks about world cuisine, and she's traveled over the entire planet, I think. <laughs> and now she lives in the beautiful Scottish Highlands, where she runs uh, cookery workshops and wilderness retreats. So let's have a little chat with Gilly. Hi. Hi, Gilly. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sumaya. So tell me a little bit. I mean, your life is a very interesting one. Why? Because you have had the flavor of food from across the world. So you know the ethos of how people cook, and all the recipes that you have learned over the time um, of your career has been very much from people who live in those countries and breathe the food and 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 have learned over decades of you know family recipes and all been sort of passed down by you know family. So tell me a little bit about your earliest memories because you grew up in East Africa and the food there is very unknown to most people in this country. So tell us a bit about your growing up in East Africa and the food and the flavors and the memories. Well, I uh, first went to East Africa when I was four, and um, and my parents tell me that I had actually been interested in food since I was about ten months. So uh, we had lived in America and on board a ship. um going from Scotland to America i apparently shunned baby food and sort of grabbed all the olives and anchovies and things that were passing by my nose on their way to adults that were standing around their children in their sort of high chairs eating baby food so i the, the that idea of savory and and different flavors just must have been something natural in me so when we went to east africa the first thing was we had um a a cook um everybody's household has a cook and ours was from um Lake Victoria where there's a lot of uh, fish in the diet and a little bit of spice not a huge amount um and our cook was was great because he loved having me in the kitchen just helping him uh chopping and and preparing different dishes and also doing things like running out when the rains came and the termites take to the air you know they all just fly on mass like a great big snowstorm and we would just take the butterfly nets and catch them and then put them all in buckets and i'd have that sort of grim task of pulling off all the wings and then he would uh, just toss them in butter and garlic and it's a real african sort of delicacy you know everybody does it so tribal people like the masai and the pokot they'll um collect them and then just sort of cook them over an open fire and they taste a little bit like peanuts when they're done like that whereas when they're done in a pan with butter and garlic they taste a little bit more like a a prawn you know as a little wow. tiny prawn anyway there was that kind of thing going on and you'd be showing me you know how to dry the seeds of pawpaws for example which um you dry in the sun and then grind and use like black pepper you know which is done in a number of countries yeah. but these kind of things as a child they're just so interesting and um and then his drying of his fish on the line and um and making his own version of um you know dried beef bilton um and cooking snake it, it, there's lots of things and then of course there was safaris 
um, and we'd always be cooking out in the bush and you'd be with uh, different types of uh, old African hands so some of them might be African but some of them would be colonial people and they all had their different ways of, of doing things so we'd sort of you know stuff intestines um, with offal and cook them over the fire like they do in so many mm. like they do in Pakistan yeah. and so many countries and um, we would we would you know be cooking things like you know kudu impala um, zebra, uh, all of that kind of thing, and taking the the powder from the baobab fruit mm-hmm. and making a drink, and um, and just even things like the, the 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 porridge cooking in the morning, the smell of it when you wake up and you're in the open air and you've got you've had elephant around your tent, you know, during the night and you've got sort of great big mounds of elephant dung steaming away, but the porridge pot is cooking as well, and it's just all of these things. It, as a child, you don't necessarily compute what's going on, but they hit you, the senses, the aromas. And because my parents were doctors, um, we spent a lot of time with different people. So my mother's work took um, her into the villages and it, with tribal peoples. And my father's work, he, he set up the first medical school in Nairobi um, so that the first doctors could actually train to be doctors in that country. And so he worked very closely with the main hospital in in Nairobi and the university, which meant that he, all his colleagues were, were from all over the world, um, but a lot of them were Indian. And so we spent a lot of time in Indian households mm-hmm. and some other uh, different nationalities, but a lot of time in the Indian ones. And then with my mother, a lot of time in the villages mm-hmm. uh, with different tribal people. So as a child, I'm like switching from that lovely, you know, the, the, the kitchens of, of, of the Indian women where I was just as mesmerised by those beautiful bangles that they mm. all wear, you know, different colours and they all tinkle away while they're busy bashing something in the mortar and pestle and I'd be just as mesmerised by that as I would by the sort of aromas that were coming out and just sort of seeing things like Ganesh's sitting in the kitchen and, um, and, and how they did rice was always so interesting. And then putting that little bit of hing, mm. you know, under the lid of the, of the pot to flavor everything. And then I go from that to collecting little bananas off trees with the kukuyu or, um, a, a different, different type of village. They all kind of cooked in the same way. Lots of, um, sweet potato or yam or, um, other sort of roots and tubers and, big sort of spinach style leaves and things were often just cooked very simply in great big pots and grinding maize you know or cooking uh mealies the the great the this corn on the cob really yeah. over the fire using grains mixed in with that but what was really fascinating was using fruit as vegetables that yeah that 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 was something that hit me, you know, that here we were collecting the bananas off the tree. I'd only ever eaten a banana as a banana, but these bananas weren't being eaten as bananas. They were being chopped up and popped into the pot with the, you know, with things like turnip and, and yam and yeah. um and beans and things like that. So all of that I absorbed and loved. And I think the other problem with me is I've always been greedy. <laughs> I can't. I don't think you're greedy at all. I've never seen you eating very much. 
<laughs> but you know that's the fascinating part you weren't just exposed to one kind of smell one kind of technique one kind of style you were exposed to so many different cultures and i think being in you know east africa and having all that melting pot of different cultures you know the indians and obviously the locals um there is a real so your memory of flavor is diverse so you could be sitting somewhere and something from completely somewhere else would remind you of something with your childhood and, and remind you of things that you probably ate and watched and um so that like sort of so you know so asking you a question like what is your cooking influence is a really hard one because i suppose you have so many influences definitely because it's not just the fact of living in east africa and having all of those influences my mother was also a cook mm. and um you know as anyone who has a mother um that is a cook will will have memories of that and probably have picked up uh, techniques or certainly dishes that they love to do but she or she loved to entertain and she wasn't a good cook when i was young because she was learning mm. she hadn't grown up in a cooking household and then she ended up in africa with a cook in the house and she decided that she wanted to learn to cook so there she was uh, all the way from uh, you know other what well, we lived miles away from anyone you know 5 miles up a track and uh she ordered the early cordon bleu mm -hmm. magazines you know my mother used to do <laughs> yeah, in the 1960s yeah. you know the very first one and they didn't come week by week mm. they just arrived in a batch by airmail sort of 25 at a time absolutely know what that and means <laughs> so she would sort of learn to cook through that and we would you know she say we're well, having number 10 tonight or yes. number 25 <laughs> or whatever but but the the joy for her was going and picking the bougainvillea or the frangipani and setting the table and putting the flower arrangements on the table and um if we were eating with our hands to have little you know pots of water with the frangipani head sitting in it yeah. for the perfume and and she just and she loved to uh to, to try and create things with the she loved going to the markets and then buying loads of passion fruit and avocados and things that she'd not had because she had spent her youth um and her young adulthood in uh either the borders in Scotland or in Glasgow and in those days there wasn't the choice of things like that so you know you can get mangoes anywhere in Glasgow now but you couldn't then mm. and we were talking about the early 1960s so um for her it was it was just as eye opening as it was for me in a sense and from that um she grew a real passion for cooking and became a very adept cook in the sense of entertaining um british style mm -hmm. you know like she couldn't turn her hand to an indian dish and um and and she couldn't for the life of i don't know how she why this was but she couldn't cook pasta she always <laughs> way overcooked it she didn't ever got this al dente sort of idea um so you know she couldn't turn her hand to different cultures mm -hmm. but she could certainly put together a really amazing three course meal mm. and everything in it perfect you know yeah. so there was an influence there too of course and then in somewhere like east africa you know you've got that those things that i mentioned earlier about you know the different tribes and the big indian communities within the the history of the region um and but you've also got italians in the history of the region and you've got your sort of german dutch influence coming up from the the um southern parts of africa and you've got your portuguese influence in mozambique um so you've got all of that going on and then you go to the coast you know 
somewhere like Mombasa, for example, and the Arab influence is huge. But there's also Persian influence in the history. And all that's reflected in the cooking. And something that hit home to me was when I was first working years later as a young adult based in Istanbul and then working as a journalist all over the Middle East was how many dishes of my childhood from Mombasa I was discovering. You know, little did I know in those days that actually I would be making a living out of writing about um, Arab food, yeah. you know. So it's um, it, it all has come sort of full circle. Yeah. So let's take you to, to your career later on when you, when you grew up and decided you wanted to do something that involved travel and food. So tell me how, you, how that transpired and how you found yourself drawn to this, this life of food and travel and walking around all over the world. <laughs> tell us a little bit about that and a few sort of, you know, key notes, flavors that really hit and really sort of made you feel like, um, you know, I want to learn more about this and I want to really explore food further. Just a little bit about that to be lovely. Well, as I said, I think, you know, this, I've always loved eating mm. and I've always loved going into kitchens or, um, or if people don't have kitchens, sitting in their yard mm. and cooking over the open fire and just watching all the traditional techniques I've loved that it's something so you know it's the hands isn't it it's that tactile thing you're always bashing or chopping or smelling or splitting pods or Mm -hmm. there's something going on and I've always loved using my hands but the other thing that goes with it in many cultures is the chat amongst women and I I I, I loved that as a child you know you'd be sitting around and watching them all and 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 children are involved you know in in this country children aren't often given knives to chop with at a young age but in that part of the world they're busy threshing stuff with a great big panga, you know, mm-hmm. like a machete at age five. Um, so it, it, that kind of thing was already um, interesting me. And years later, when it came to university years, I studied social anthropology at university. And I, it, it, it's the culture that, um, that kind of drew me more into the food. So when I was doing... Um, you know, big sort of research stuff for my course, I kind of focused on the food side of it. And that took me to um, some remote parts of northern India, and it took me to Morocco as well. Um, Still under 20, I'm still in my teens. And I think then the just I thought, oh, gosh, this is definitely what I want to do, Mm -hmm. because it's just all those spices, it's spices. I love spices. And it's it's that... um, it's what you do with them. It's the story behind the spices is already so interesting. But it's the fact that you're, you know, you're taking these seeds from different plants and things. And then once you roast them, they're giving you a different aroma. When you pound them, they're doing something else. And it's the way that different people use them. So people in Morocco use them so differently to people in India. Exactly. And therefore the dishes are so different. And it's learning how to layer those yeah. flavors or okay. how to finish off with a little sing-song note or whatever it is yeah. you know or put that bass note in right in at the beginning of the cooking process and I just found that really interesting so once I finished university I thought well what do I do and my parents thought what do you do I mean you've got an anthropology degree you've got you you, you can only go and teach what else can you do you need to go and do another course and they pat me off to do this secretarial course in London which <laughs> It just was not me. I mean, I turn up and everyone is dressed in skirts and high heels and made up and looking like they're budding secretaries. And I rack up in walking boots and and a a pack on my back and a T-shirt. And I'm actually told to go shopping. 
uh, that when I met at the door, they say <laughs> you need to dress like a secretary. <laughs> but I somehow can't see you as a secretary. No, absolutely not. But this was their idea that I, you know, I had absolutely no um, opportunity to find a job. So I was sharing a flat with um, with friends, and one of them was um, a documentary filmmaker uh, with the Bristol unit, and. Um, and he was heading off to Venezuela to make a film and everything. And I thought, no, this is what I should be doing, that kind of thing. So I wrote to David Attenborough and I actually wrote him a handwritten letter and he wrote a handwritten wow. letter back. And what I asked him was, because he'd just done his first um, series, you know, Planet mm -hmm. Earth. And I asked him, how do I... As a, as a graduate of anthropology, get into sort of documentaries and perhaps documentary research. And he wrote back to say, and I gave him a spiel about my life and all of that kind of thing and people I'd met because in Africa that there were lots of people that were filmmakers mm -hmm. and, and I knew that he knew quite a lot of them and I found that whole thing so fascinating. And so he wrote back and he said, well, at the moment in the Bristol unit, there is no room for an anthropologist. It's just... Um, a bi biology and zoology and but he put me in touch with somebody at the BBC to go and uh, sort of find out what it would be like but he did say to me I think that you would find it very frustrating going into documentary research because you'll just be in the archives mm. so why don't you go abroad work as a journalist and then once you've established yourself transfer get into television journalism and transfer across and come back that way so you're at a higher level and can then move into documentaries as a producer mm -hmm. um that sort of thing so that's kind of what i did and i ended up in istanbul um working as a freelance journalist and uh i covered news terrorism uh earthquakes all of that kind of thing for several years had to learn turkish and some arabic and i was the only sort of um female base there mm -hmm. uh that it was we're, t we're still talking pre-internet pre-mobile phone mm -hmm. so all um all articles were written on a typewriter <laughs> and uh you had to send them off by telex i did all my own photography and had to you know develop my own film and then that would be sent by courier and it was interesting but it was also quite alarming because i was so young and i was having to learn about Middle Eastern politics on the job as well as learn the language at the same time. I had some very good Turkish colleagues, so that was great. They looked after me very well. But I was often put into, into situations that were extremely dangerous and awkward, and I just realised I actually do not know what is going on. <laughs> and so I thought, I'm best not to be this type of journalist. Mm. I'll just focus on the food and the travel and so I got various deals with different magazines that were food and travel ones. And that was great because then I could go off all over Turkey, but I could go off to India, to Southeast Asia. Um, and I just spent time cooking with women uh, in all of these different places, you know, find little villages and hang out and chat. And when you've got a few languages under your belt, it's amazing yeah. where you can travel and mm -hmm. how you can go. Anyway, food is a way of communicating, isn't Absolutely. it? It doesn't matter where you are in the world, you mm -hmm. can communicate over food. So that's how that all came together. And yeah. it started as articles. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't do a book until I came to live in the Scottish Highlands. 
and my first book was on Turkish food and it was in 1995 mm -hmm. and it was actually the first of its kind. Mm -hmm. There weren't really any Turkish books until then and if there were, they were usually kind of like tourist pamphlety yeah. mm -hmm. ones, you know, for the mm -hmm. tourist market, which weren't really that accurate and didn't have great photography. Um, but for Turkish people, like like your own culture, you know, people didn't ever use recipes. No. It's just all in, in, in the senses. Yeah. It's all in the head. It's all passed down. Yeah. Um, so the, for many Turkish women, my book was actually a, a, a starting point for them. Yeah. And they loved that because it it's not that they needed to have a recipe um, to make what they were making, but they had never seen it written down before. Yeah. And they'd never seen it written in a way that could translate to um, somebody not within their culture because yeah. nobody measures, you know. Yeah. And I hate measuring. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to when you yeah. write a recipe. Um, everything for them was, you know, it's the little, the little Turkish coffee cup. So it's yeah. a coffee cup of this, yes. you know, finjan. You have a finjan of this and a finjan of that. Or um, a little spoon, you know, uh, it, it, or or a fingerful, yeah. you know, nothing is is ounces and grams and all exactly. that kind of stuff. So this was for them, and it also put the the cooking into context because you have this as well about um, Pakistani food and and food because of your childhood of traveling um, around the world. Um, you can actually look at your own cuisine from the outside. Yes, and because I have had a childhood of travel I can look at the cuisines I enter from the outside mm -hmm. but I want to understand them from the inside yeah. therefore I get to know the culture I get to know the language I spend time with the people so that I feel that if I'm going to write about it I'm going to write something that they're proud of and something that they would maybe use or that they're thankful I've put it in writing. I've never wrote a book that was all about me. Yes, exactly. The book was always about the their culture cuisine. and their food. Mm -hmm. And I would always try to put their traditional food into context and their classics mm -hmm. and things like that. I might put a few twists on things. That didn't matter. But um, it was never, you know, that this is my baba ganoush. You know? Yes, exactly. It, 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 it was very much put into the context. And... Um, and I think that was important to a lot of people. I got so many letters and once mm. internet came into play, so many emails from, and still do, from different parts of the world, from people who use the books in those cultures. And so much so that, you know, even in Cambodia, after the Pol Pot regime, mm -hmm. they had everything destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so my first Cambodian book was, the, was, was really all they had. And so the government, and, or the, the, the government tourist agency asked if they could use the book, you know, to actually develop their own, mm. which I just thought, well, why not? Exactly. You know, they're not my recipes, mm. they belong to their culture. And so it wasn't a monetary deal at all. It was just, yes, please, this is your culture. Do just take what you want and create your own thing from it because they just didn't have anything. Yeah. And to me, that was so much more important. But I think people that live in their culture, so I have a lot of friends um, you know, who are Indian in India, who are Turkish in Turkey, um, who, or, you know, Moroccan in, in Morocco, who only know their cuisine. Mm -hmm. And they may not even know many of their regional dishes. They may not even know how diverse the food is in their own country. Mm -hmm. um, but what they do is amazing mm -hmm. because it's theirs and, yeah. and, and it tastes like, nothing else they do it beautifully but they either haven't had the curiosity mm -hmm. to look beyond 
or it's just not been part of their life, you know. Yeah. Uh, so as an outsider, you can do that. You can see everything else as yeah. well. Yeah, and I think that's what happens. You get very stuck in your way and you think your way, you protect your way of cooking because that's your sort of little space. So it is harder for you to look out. And I, I mean, I've personally seen that my own, I've become more curious about the rest of the cuisine of my country since I moved away because I have more perspective and I can look back and say, well, there's so much more to discover. And I think you coming in and then wanting to go in and understand everything, you, you have an open mind to everything there. And that's fantastic. But let's bring you back to Scotland because, you know, originally you are Scottish and your family, you, you know, you, you do, you now live in the beautiful Scottish Highlands and, and, um, it's it's what's interesting to me is are there any sort of Scottish I mean you know Scottish cuisine as well and, and produce mainly is there something to you that makes you feel at home with Scottish food is there something that speaks to you about Scottish food what is it about Scotland's culinary landscape um, that inspires you well the thing about Scotland is we have amazing produce um, you know our our fish and shellfish is is just the best and we have uh, wonderful meat um, and, and the vegetables and things that we grow, they, they work well within um, the sort of traditional food. But the, the sort of culinary landscape of Scotland has changed a lot. So, you know, there are still traditional things done. And if you go to places like Orkney, you know, you'll still see the bear meal being threshed and ground and, um, and people use it in their baking all the time. Uh, but at the same time, there's been such a sort of evolution of mm. um, bringing other cultures into the cuisine, which actually was also in our history. I mean, in Victorian times, that happened a lot. And um, I think now, wherever you go, even if you have fish um, on the West Coast or lamb in Perthshire or something, you 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 might well get something like a traditional rowan jelly with mm. your lamb and and maybe not very much mayonnaise perhaps with your fish but you'll also have a lot of people doing things with you know spice um pastes and sauces and dressings that might be italian might be indian might be indonesian you know might be south american mexican whatever um because people are always playing nowadays which is nice because you've got the wonderful produce and you've got people trying to bring flavor into it so the the thing for me in Scotland is actually more about I'm rooted here you know mm. my roots are here my physical roots are here I am Scottish and everywhere I've traveled in the world there have been parts of the world that have reminded me of mm. Scotland and I'm now in a place where I can actually sit on the deck of my house and I'm actually reminded of Africa mm. or I'm reminded of um, maybe somewhere in, in eastern Anatolia, you know, because I've got such open views and hills and um, and no neighbours and, and, and I see colours changing and, and all of that kind of thing. And it's less about the food and more about my um, sort of the way I'm centred and rooted and inspired. And then I can produce all sorts of things from here. So my kitchen is full of the world, <laughs> yes. you know, world aromas. I, my spices actually come straight to me from Istanbul. Um, I still have my, my spice merchant there. And, um, and I do a lot of wild, um, you know, foraging. And I love to combine the aromas of the wild plants with, say, you know, spices from mm -hmm. India or Pakistan or, um, you know, that, that sort of idea of um of of kind of mixing the two and then 
producing something slightly unique mm. because you've added in some, you know, the, the maybe the aniseed flavour of sweet Sicily alongside, you know, some lovely Sri Lankan cinnamon and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, whatever. You know what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah. Um, and so it, it it's just fun playing with it. Yeah. But, um, you know, I've had to work a little bit with traditional dishes from Scotland and I wouldn't say that the traditions are that exciting. <laughs> um, you know, it's a lot of grain, a lot of um, raspberries are used, there's a lot of sort of um, heavy baking, which is perfected now. Mm-hmm. You know, people have perfected it and it's much lighter, but um, it, it there wasn't, you know, life, life was tough in Highlands mm-hmm. and food was um, just a fuel. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, that there isn't, that sort of history of such fine dining but you've got um so much to play with you yeah. know with all the berries and the game as well mm-hmm. lean meat yeah. yeah yeah and i think that you know you're given that opportunity with all your knowledge and experiences and flavors that you've learned um to actually just play and create something that has a scottish base in it uh but then has is has a flavor of the world in it and i think that is quite a unique thing to do and and is how scottish produce can be used because it has it's like that blank canvas which can take in so much because the quality of the produce is you know absolutely supreme um but i'm going to ask you last question because i hate i hate stopping because you you have such interesting stuff to tell but if there's something that really there's out of all the things that you've done all the foods that you've learned and cook one thing that may, you know that you always go to that makes you feel the most comfort that you can cook with your eyes closed um you know your your memory of it the taste of it everything you can just throw it together and make it taste like home what would it be and it's a difficult question but what would it be <laughs> yeah that's a really difficult one um and I think that comes back to that thing of being greedy because you end up loving so many things. <laughs> um, I mean, spices are, are, are my go-to for everything. But I think if there's, if there's an ingredient that I use a lot for dishes and it's really underused and often underrated, it's the aubergine. Yeah. I love aubergines and they're just so, so versatile. And I can make baba ganoush with my eyes shut, but I can also make bayandi with my eyes shut. Bayandi is when you, you combine the the um, smoked aubergine in a cheese sauce. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, the flesh of an aubergine is just uh, amazing. So much so much you can do with it. And I've always wanted to write a book on aubergines, but nobody's ever been interested. Really? Uh, yeah, but now somebody yes. famous will do it. Oh, well, <laughs> you're famous. Yeah, you know, because nobody's interested now because you're off social media, you've got to have all yeah. But yeah, it's um, lovely. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful fruit. It is. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Gilly, for joining us. Um, I'm sure everyone's going to love that um, little trip all over the world in 30 minutes. <laughs> Thanks. No, thank you so Bye. much. Bye. Thank you guys for listening um, and join us next time.